This created a ticking time bomb with a very short timer. That money was going to work in completely artificial markets that were being driven by pure central planning insanity instead of actual fundamentals. As everyone and their mother who had excess cash was shoveling it into financial and real estate assets, global supply chains were quickly breaking down. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We have got a great little read today to start off the week. This is from Marty Bent's newsletter, aptly named Marty's Bent, and it is on a topic that I have been just kind of wrapped up in for the last couple of weeks. Um, This is what we talked about on Part of the Problem. By the way, if you didn't know, Dave Smith had me back on. I was with Clint and Robbie. We had it was just an absolute blast. Um, I'll have that link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Um, uh, such a fun episode. It was really kind of on all of these same topics that we're covering in today's show. Uh, but you know this this topic um, that Marty is writing about here about just kind of the economic fallout and how all of this stuff is t- tethered together essentially. There's like the way that the economy is imploding and understanding why it is, it's really just frankly interesting, but it also satisfies some kind of weird morbid fascination I have with watching the economy break down because it's it's like an organism that's being fed arsenic by the very systems that are supposed to keep it alive. Um, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Marty will lay it out, lay out his framework uh, for this very interesting discussion with a great bent on the cascading risk that is currently unraveling throughout our economy and why Bitcoin is such a crucial part of the solution. Before we get into it, I just want to thank our sponsors at Swan Bitcoin for stacking for me every single week automatically. And check out Swan Private if you want to get the sovereign, from beginning to sovereign walkthrough on your Bitcoin journey. Uh, Swan also withdraws directly to my multi-sig with my Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Trust me, a good hardware wallet is the number one thing. You want to hold your own keys and you want to know that shit is safe. Get uh, 5% off with code GUY at guyswan.com slash bitbox, link in the show notes. And lastly, a thank you to my Fold Card, not only for sponsoring the show, but because I have been stacking sats like crazy just on my normal bills. I got almost a, I have almost a million sats back just in the month of May, on my bills. Seriously, get the fold card, guys. It's nuts. All links in the show notes. Don't forget to check them out. Okay, we delay no further. It is time to get into today's excellent read from Marty Bent. And it's titled, What You Are Witnessing is the Cascading of Interconnected Risk. Marty's Bent, Issue 1208. It's chaos out there. With inflation running rampant, supply chain problems becoming more exacerbated by the day, and interest rates remaining relatively elevated as Jerome Powell and crew attempt to reel inflation in, things are starting to break. A rise in the federal funds rate, the rate at which banks and similar financial institutions trade their overnight reserves, has an effect on every other interest rate throughout the market. If it gets more expensive for banks to borrow funds overnight to ensure they have sufficient reserves, they have to cover those increased costs by passing them along to their customers. One place this cost-passing materializes is in the real estate markets. As you may have noticed, mortgage rates have begun steadily increasing since the Fed started its rate hike earlier this year. I picked January 2020 to today as the time series for this chart because it captures the immediate lead-up to the forced lockdown of the global economy and everything that has ensued since that point. If you recall, the lockdowns forced a lot of individuals to question whether or not they wanted to live in cities anymore, and many across the U.S. decided that they, in fact, 
did not. So, they went out, took advantage of an extremely low interest rate environment, and purchased houses using mortgages with historically low interest rates attached to them. Concurrently, the Fed and the Treasury were pumping the U.S. economy with as much cash as humanly possible to prop up the economy as the entire workforce of the country was forced to adjust to the lockdowns on the fly. Many were able to work from home. Many others were not. Artificially forcing a material amount of the workforce out of the workforce created massive disruptions in our supply chains. As the Fed was pumping money into the economy, many of those who were lucky enough to keep their jobs and work remotely were taking the excess income they had from not being able to operate throughout the economy as they normally would and dumping it into the stock markets, crypto, more real estate, and a number of other investments to, quote, put their money to work. Many of these individuals were using leverage. This created a ticking time bomb with a very short timer. That money was going to work in completely artificial markets that were being driven by pure central planning insanity instead of actual fundamentals. As everyone and their mother who had excess cash was shoveling it into financial and real estate assets, global supply chains were quickly breaking down. The halting of these supply chains in early 2020 sowed the seeds for the barrage of massive inflation prints that we have experienced over the course of the last six months. Breaking the supply chains has led to massive supply shortages for things that actually matter, food, fuel, and raw materials, and is pushing their prices to astronomical levels. This is where we return to the beginning of this rag. Noticing this and getting weary of inflation running so hot that it creeps into hyperinflationary territory, the Fed is being forced to raise rates to try to curb that inflation. That is having an effect on the financial and real estate markets that were being artificially propped up for the last two years. The rise in rates and shutting off of the money spigot, in conjunction with a negative GDP print in quarter one 2022, is causing markets to puke their brains out. There is no one there to artificially prop up prices, and people are beginning to have to weigh the decision of keeping their money in the stock and real estate markets or selling those assets so they can afford to survive. This is creating a doom loop because, like we said earlier, many individuals were using leverage to get exposure to these assets over the last two years. Tur came across two examples of this on Reddit and Facebook. Quote, from the Personal Finance subreddit. Purchased a home last year with a variable rate loan backed by my RSUs, but now they are not worth as much. Will the bank do anything? I work in tech, bringing around seventy-five dollars to $100,000 in stock options a year, plus my sign-on stock five years ago. Last summer, we purchased a home for $950,000 in cash, using the stock to qualify for a loan so we could be competitive in Northern Virginia. Recently, the value of the stocks has dropped to around $250,000, and the loan after fees and interest has passed $1 million. We plan to keep making the payments, but our original plan of selling all the stock to pay it off is no longer an option, and since the rate can be made variable at the lender's discretion, is that a possibility now that the collateral is worth less than the loan? Is it a possibility to take out a traditional mortgage now that the house is ours to protect it? Should I call our lender or hope they don't notice the stock decreased in value? Facebook post, quote, Loan called. What would you do? In January, I sold my home of 20 years and put most of the money, $2 million, into the stock market and cash. Five weeks later, I closed on a commercial residential property in another town for $1.36 million using the cash plus a $750,000 loan against my $1.1 million brokerage account at 3.2%. My first interest payment of $1,116 is due in five days. Last night, I received a demand letter from Schwab. My brokerage account that had $1.1 million in it is down something like $230,000 in the last five weeks, $50K in the last day 
and they're demanding the loan be repaid now. The account was up $50,000 on the day I set up the pledged asset account. If I repay now by selling stocks, I lock in $230,000 worth of losses. That would be insane. My stocks are all blue chip companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, Deer, etc., but all hammered at the moment. If I take the short-term loss, I don't even think I can use it to offset my long-term gain on the real estate, can I? I also needed to keep at least $500,000 available in my brokerage account to pay capital gains taxes next year on my previous sale. I don't know what they are, but I need to have that reserve just in case. I cannot get a conventional loan because I don't have the income. I'm a freelance photographer, and I'm a couple of years behind on my tax returns. A banker won't even talk to me. I'm considering my options. There are many out there who have very similar stories to the two above. There are a number of individuals throughout the country who took advantage of elevated stock prices to use their portfolios as collateral for the real estate they purchased. The Fed isn't going to stop printing, so stocks will keep pumping and mortgage rates will remain glued to the floor. Seemed like an ironclad strategy. A risk-free bet to many. How could it go wrong? Well, reality stepped into the picture. That's what went wrong. At the end of the day, essential goods need to be produced and delivered to market. That has not been happening for the last couple of years. The proverbial pot was slowly, quickly really, boiling over the course of 2020 and 2021, and the whole goddamn world was sitting in it as if it was some desert oasis. The paper gains in stocks, real estate, and crypto, Bitcoin included, felt really nice to look at and periodically tap into. While many were looking at their Robinhood accounts and refreshing Zillow to see how much their houses had appreciated in value, inventories for the things we desperately need, food, fuel, and the raw materials necessary for building the things that got them and other essential goods to market, were quickly being depleted. And now the whole world is learning the day one economics 101 lesson of supply and demand. If demand for certain goods stays static or increases, while the supply of those goods dwindles, prices are going to rise. Price increases are forcing the Fed to act, and their action is leading to a cascading effect driven by interconnected risk that has been pushed to the heavens in financial markets via artificial money printing. Stocks are going down, and people who use those stocks as leverage to buy homes are beginning to realize they are not as secure as they thought they were when they signed their mortgages. That problem is being exacerbated by adjustable rate mortgages, which are simultaneously increasing monthly payments as the underlying collateral is evaporating. That scenario is being exacerbated by the fact that others, who don't find themselves in that situation, are finding themselves in a forced selling position because they need to afford to put gas in their cars and food on their tables. What is really scary to think about is that this could be further exacerbated by the baby boomers who previously thought they were comfortable in retirement, adding to the cascading effect by selling their financial and real estate assets in an attempt to lock in a somewhat material nest egg in cash so that they can live lives of sufficient comfort. This is what happens when you build an economy on fiat. It produces a mirage of security that can be wiped out in a very short period of time. That is what is happening at the moment. People are losing security at a rapid pace. And yes, Bitcoin seems to be getting swept up into this cascading doom loop. I'd argue that this is due to the fact that it is a nascent monetary asset with a relatively small network effect. However, this does not mean Bitcoin isn't working. Bitcoin works beautifully. As of the time of writing, we are sitting at block height 736,015. And while the price associated to the network's native token may be taking a hit with the rest of the markets, it is still working as advertised. Producing blocks roughly every 10 minutes and adjusting the difficulty target as necessary. Plus 4.9% yesterday. If anything, despite the short-term price hit, the first five months of 2022 could not be a better advertisement for Bitcoin if you ask for one. The policy moves made by the Fed over the last two years 
coupled with overarching totalitarianism from the federal government, are acutely highlighting the systemic problems with fiat money and centralized control that can only be solved by adopting a hard money standard. Under a Bitcoin standard, the Federal Reserve won't be able to print money ex nihilo, propping up markets, misallocating capital on a global scale, and giving people a false sense of security. Likewise, the federal government won't be able to attempt to centrally plan the economy because they won't have the Fed's money printer to lean on, and any attempts to do so will be too costly. Things may seem dire at the moment, but this experience should be seen as a cleansing that hopefully leads to a wake-up call that helps people realize that this type of micromanagement isn't sustainable. Many are starting to realize that we have a massive problem on our hands. That is the first step in fixing the problem. Recognition. Next, it is imperative that competent individuals who understand what is going on to work as hard as possible to educate those who are beginning to recognize that there is a massive problem about the core of that problem. Easy money. From there, solutions can be presented. And the best solution we have is Bitcoin. Fix the money. Fix the world. Final thoughts. The fasting clarity is starting to kick in. Okay, before we jump into Guy's take on this piece, uh, let's take a quick break and hit our sponsor, and we'll jump back in. So how do you protect yourself from this sort of cascading risk? You hold assets that are not someone else's liability. And of course, don't leverage them. That is why I stack and withdraw and save in Bitcoin every single week with Swan Bitcoin. And then when I get opportunities like prices on sale, I stack a little bit more. But best of all, Swan Bitcoin also has Swan Private, which is the concierge service for getting exposure to Bitcoin. They will walk you from absolute beginner to securely holding your own keys in cold storage. Swan Bitcoin has the most knowledgeable team in the business, and literally everything they do is to help you better understand and better protect your Bitcoin. You want help getting into Bitcoin with your retirement account, your traditional 401k or your IRA? Maybe you have a trust, you have a business or some other entity account. You want direct access for assistance and answers to all of your questions by the best team of Bitcoiners out there? That is Swan Private. And the easiest way to get started is to go to swanbitcoin.com guy and either select private up at the top of the page or just go ahead and set up your automatic purchase. I have been stacking every single week for I don't even know how long, and it is never going to stop. That is my savings for the future. Again, that is swanbitcoin.com slash guy. That is my referral link. Go there now and start your Bitcoin journey. So this was a really good, I've only done a couple of Marty's uh, bents <laughs> on, uh, on the show before, uh, but this one this one really stuck with me, and uh, it's something that I've been wanting to talk about. Uh, it's it's basically like very much in line with a lot of the discussion we actually had with Dave Smith just the other day. So Clint, myself, and then Robbie and Dave from Part of the Problem uh, got together and had an awesome just three-hour run on everything about the current economic crisis, what is going on. It was basically this topic in... Not quite Marty's words, but but essentially the same the same conversation. Because this is the state of the world. This is what's happening right now. And I feel like it's incredible that it seems so obvious in hindsight. Like or if you know like some of the basic economic foundations, like economic principles at play, it's so obvious how we got here. It's so obvious how this why this is unfolding the way it is. And somehow this, I guess it's just the incentives are to not see it because to see it means to basically be forced to change everything about how we treat monetary policy and the banking system. It's to recognize that we have caused this problem, that the very foundational way that this thing works is antithetical to stability and to a robust, stable economy. This is literally the fundamental and, and critical difference 
between an economy built on a monetary asset and a monetary liability. I, I want to make this clear, and I, I wish there was an easy way to just say two sentences that would get this into people's heads, that our money, our base money, fiat money, is a debt. It is issued as a liability, which means that everyone's perception of what they own is reliant on someone else fulfilling a promise. It is all counterparty risk from top to bottom. This is how you get this insanely margin-traded leverage system, and it all goes back to the state, so that if the state imbalances themselves, if the state promises $150 trillion in unfunded liabilities, what do you know, we seem to have done that, and they can't actually pay it, we pay the price. The currency pays the price, and everything that we think we own does not actually maintain purchasing power. It can't, because it is someone else's liability, and if they promise, it is a token of the government of the political apparatus's false promises. So if the political apparatus cannot fulfill its promises, if it has promised too much in order to gain power and control, which is basically the state of all politics everywhere, well then, we're not going to get our money back. We're not going to get the value out of what we think we own. And to add to that, that it actually, it directly and powerfully incentivizes people to leverage, to basically take this and extend the problem, extend the liability another step down the line. It creates this systemic fragility. It is actually, it, it's actually a form of, it's actually a form of monetary socialism. It's, it's a way to attach everyone's liabilities such that Everyone pays the price of everyone else's failure. You cannot separate one large institutional failure from the rest of the economy because we, like, as Marty Bent says, he calls it cascading risk. We are all so deeply tied to each other because there's no real monetary buffer. There's no savings between each person's liability and the next person's perceived perception of what they own. We have this form, we create this bizarre financialized form of socialized losses and privatized profits. It means that one person's failure to pay their debts is, has an effect on the next person's balance sheet, which re results in them not being able to pay their debts because we're tethered by debts. We operate from debt to the next debt to the next leverage. We've become an economy that used to during the after the World War and the Great Depression, our, our culture shifted back. We had this swing back towards an attempt at sound money, an attempt at a gold standard again after we failed it miserably from the creation of the Federal Reserve in, the, in you know, 1913, and, uh, which led right into the First World War because, oh, look at all this money we have, or look at, look at this printing machine, what can we do with it? Oh, let's have a war. Um, and then we led right into the Roaring Twenties, which is essentially a microcosm of what we've done over the last 50 years. We, we lowered interest rates, we encouraged uh, debt and spending by manipulating the price, by printing money, uh, extending it past the gold window. Essentially, there was not enough actual money there to fulfill the receipts. Um, and we had this kind of mixed monetary system back then, so there was a lot of pressure to rein it in, so it didn't last very long. I think we got to 250 or 300% debt to actual assets, debt to actual productivity across the economy, across the entire scope of the society. Uh, and then that collapsed in 31, or no, 29, I guess was the collapse, um, and it started to reel itself in. Uh, and then we had the Great Depression because the government came in and tried to fix it, quote-unquote. And then we had World War II. Then we had, you know, 10 years of the economy not being able to actually heal itself because the government was sucking and funneling all of the money through the political apparatus. Started with Hoover, and then FDR just basically continued Hoover's policies. Uh, if, if this is all new to you, um, there's a couple of great books. I'll, I'll put them in the show notes on the Great Depression and uh, even in the memoirs of uh, the top economic advisor of FDR, like, you know, history, like, if you, if you 
go to public school. I'm sure you were taught that Hoover was some laissez-faire and then FDR came in and saved them and changed the policies. Well, if you actually read, there's a whole section of the memoirs of uh, the top economic advisor of FDR that said we basically just repackaged exactly what Hoover was doing. Hoover was absolutely the the exact opposite of laissez-faire. It's you just just look at the policies. It's the same shit. It's just mountains of subsidies, corporate uh, uh, corporate sponsorship, purchasing of massive amounts of goods uh, straight directly to the government. It was nothing but government program after government program uh, and lobbying interest, basically special interest payoffs. And when they had stagflation and demand was shifting, the government would literally like there were even. Even today, there and this was the setup of all the social safety nets, which are all bankrupt today, uh, and they didn't help even then. Like again, a, the idea that the economic depression, that the Great Depression lasted a decade, but that somehow the government saved us, like that's the that's the greatest economic failure and mismanagement of an economy ever, ever. The government did everything they possibly could, and they prolonged a economic downturn for 10 years. Imagine if the government spent a trillion dollars and 10x what they have ever spent on education for a full decade, and yet during that same time, we had consistently, consistently, consistently the worst scores we have ever had across the nation no one outside after they got through school for that whole 10 years was even employable and literacy rates plummeted. The idea that we would teach that in history as a success is the most profound gaslighting in all of public schooling. FDR's treatment of the Great Depression, no. Hoover and FDR's response to the 1929 stock market crash and the unraveling of the debt that the Federal Reserve and the monetary policy created in the 20s caused the Great Depression, period. If they had just stopped, if they had done absolutely nothing, it would have been cleared up in a year, two tops. The poisonous debt would have defaulted, it would have cleared, we would have had fire sale prices, everyone who was wasting and using up and consuming resources and not producing anything would have gone out of business, and everyone who had any sort of savings and actual productivity would have bought it up and made it productive again. It would have taken no time at all. So what's the difference between then and now? In the years after, well, during the Great Depression, but in the decades after it, upwards, basically into 1970 and 1971, when essentially the major uh, pressure, the major um, corrective force on the debt imbalance, the, the gold window, it was entirely removed. Piece by piece, all of the things that actually made the sound money need to be balanced were slowly and systematically removed to create a pure fiat money. And so that same imbalance that we saw build up over the 20s is exactly what we have done since the 70s, except that we have made it persist for 50 years. And we have made it far, far worse than it was in the 20s. Like I said, I think it was like 250% to or 300% debt to productivity. Whereas now it's somewhere, the last time I, I tried to actually find the, the overall numbers, it was 500%. Um, I assume it, it's, it's, it's iffy because we've had a couple of recessions, so usually consumer debt falls, but then we have these spikes again where the money floods in and interest rates get pushed down and consumer, consumer debt uh, grows again, especially when we're talking about mortgages and people leveraging stocks, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, and obviously government debt has absolutely skyrocketed. So it depends on how things are calculated. I would not be surprised if it was upwards of 600% or if it was still in the 500% range because we've had crashes and then subsequent bubbles again. Like like this has been reinflated. And the credit cycles now are coming faster. Like we've actually been through a full credit cycle. This is something that I think, was it Lynn Alden that posted this? No, no, maybe it's Preston Pish. I think it's Preston Pish. And I can't remember the guy who I followed. I started following, but he has a chart. Um, but showing the uh, the credit cycle, essentially, that has happened in like the last two and a half or three years. 
basically all of the mechanisms we have to try to keep this thing pumped up are running out of steam. I and mean, we've pushed interest rates to zero. That's as low as we can push them. So now they're trying to taper, barely taper. You know, what's the Fed funds rate is like 80 basis points, like 0.8%. And that that is literally causing the entire stock market to plummet and is resulting in the stories like Marty Bent has shown here or uh, referenced here um, from uh, Turdemeester's tweets. I'll, I'll obviously link to this, by the way, if you haven't um, seen this. He's links to a couple of different things, and there's a couple of tweets if you want to actually like, dig into the stories or go to the, uh, the comment section and see what the hell Reddit is doing with those stories. But all of this... It's a really long-winded, I don't even know where all that stuff came from, but it's a really long-winded rant on basically the incentives, the, the way that the fiat mechanism causes this to occur. It is literally how our money and the monetary policy itself is designed. Our entire political, we've been saying it for decades and decades, and this is exactly what you get is that we are going to low interest rates to lower interest rates artificially to incentivize spending because it will speed up the economy. What does that do? It encourages people, it discourages saving. They call it hoarding, but it discourages people from saving and it encourages debt. It is explicitly their goal to discourage savings and encourage debt which means that one person's failure has no buffer. Savings is a buffer to total economic collapse when one person's liability goes up in flames. If you remove savings, you create this systemic fragility where any single person's failure ripples out to everyone else. A simple example. So let's say you are holding part of your portfolio is somebody else's liability. Someone else has to pay. It's somebody else's debt um, that, that they need to fulfill. That their company has to be profitable or uh, you know, they have to pay it back with interest, et cetera, et cetera. 10% of your portfolio is that. They default. Something goes wrong. Their plan goes bust. The economy doesn't produce exactly the prices they thought it was going to, which happens all the time. Good, healthy economies, bad economies, it doesn't matter. It happens all the time. 90% of businesses fail. Good or bad, we should expect that to happen. That's 10% of your portfolio. Thus, you lose 10% of your value. Well, if you have 10% of your portfolio in actual savings, in non-counterparty risk assets, well, then the buck stops with you. You eat the price, you dip into your savings to fill the gap. No, the, the cascade does not continue. The next domino doesn't fall because you, you spaced out your domino to the next person's domino, to the next person who's holding your liability just enough that they didn't hit each other when yours began to fall. You had the savings to take care of it. Now imagine you don't have that savings. You have to sell off 10% of your portfolio or default or change your agreement to the next person who has your liability. And how much is that of their portfolio? Do they have any savings to cover it or do they have to sell to make sure that they can meet their obligations on the thing they're leveraged on? That is stacking the dominoes as close together as possible. Savings is the gap between the dominoes. This is how you manipulate an economy to put all the fucking dominoes as tightly together as possible and then one little gust of wind comes along and the entire fucking economy collapses together. And it's why the only response is for the government to step in and print enormous amounts of money to stand the dominoes back up. But what do you do? You ultimately put more dominoes on the board and you put them even closer together because you're still you're causing the exact same problem that has led you to needing to fix. Your, your interventionism has led to create the problem that results in the need to intervene because we literally can't clean up any of the imbalance without destroying the entire economy. And you literally create a culture, a culture of finance and spending 
that exacerbates this problem because people grow up their entire lives thinking this is how you manage money. This is how you be profitable. You go into debt to get a house. You go into debt to buy a car. You never have any savings. You just wait for the interest rate to go lower and refinance and take money out. And all of your value is in the is in the value is in the nominal price of the thing that you don't actually own. You just pay interest on. This is you know that little joke or whatever or the cartoon if you've ever seen it that. You know, there's a homeless man on the street um, and a whole bunch of business people and, you know, wealthy, you know, people walking by, a lady walking by with dress and uh, jewelry on, and it shows their net worth. And it's like the lady in the dress is like negative $150,000. The businessman with the suit and the briefcase is negative $1.2 And then the little homeless guy on the street, uh, somebody's donating to him, and it's like he's like plus $2. That is literally the economy. That is that is that's literally how the system works. If you are credit worthy, you can own assets because the money is loaned into existence. Did you know that there used to be a time where a grocery store, like like a business, would buy new inventory with the amount of money they made off of selling the previous inventory? Like profit and revenue would be what purchased the next inventory. And we have completely flipped that on its head. We now go into debt and the profit from the current inventory is there to pay off the last loan and to get back to zero. And then you take, off a, you take on a new loan to get the next set of inventory. Any sane economy with real pricing and real incentives and, and a true price of debt to savings would do exactly that. You can't borrow resources that don't exist. You can't issue debt into existence. It makes no fundamental sense. Any economy is naturally going to have to, going to be one that goes from savings and past productivity, value and resources that have already been created into the consumption mechanism of the production process to create capital so that you can produce to create a profit, which is your savings and resources to do it all over again. And we have moved into an economy that is exactly the opposite. That is a liability. That is a debt towards the production and capital build out in order to produce and sell in order to pay off the previous debt so that you can go into debt again to make production and capital. But what you end up in is a downward spiral where as soon as you have one bad season, one bad product, one, uh, one round of uh, sales that do not meet your expectation, you're now liable you didn't get to pay back your loan and now you're in a worse position and still your only solution is to take on another loan. You end up perpetually digging yourself into a hole. And this is okay if you're one stupid irresponsible idiot and your business just goes out of business if you do that two times in a row. But if you've created an entire economy, if you have manipulated the most important price in the economy to encourage everyone to do this, as a way of life, you have, you have just created this cascading liability where every single one bad season, one drawdown in the economy, one big company going out of business can cascade through the entire economy. This is why the fiat system literally has this idea that the, the country, that the economy should literally, if not should, must, must grow every single year. That's literally because if it doesn't, it collapses. If it doesn't grow, it can't pay for the debt plus the interest of last year's loans. This is the beauty of Bitcoin. This is why savings, real savings, yes, hoarding money is one of the most crucial things in an economy. It is the, the healthiest thing. It is the only thing that makes an economy robust and saves it from this sort of irresponsibility and stupidity. It is a buffer. It is a gap between the dominoes so that the whole thing doesn't cascade through the economy. Fiat literally incentivizes a chain reaction of liability. 
with the purpose of creating this false sense, this arbitrary stability, this price stability, and this jobs mandate that we're going to make it so that the economy doesn't swing back and forth. Well, the economy stops adjusting. It stops removing bad behavior and bad business practices. You know, think about if a business is literally consuming resources, let's say it's got a 10% interest rate and it actually can't it doesn't actually have the profit margin. It doesn't have the revenue stream to pay for that loan. It's actually just consuming resources. It's not a profit that can sustain, that can be, that is worthy in the market of consuming the resources it must consume. It should go out of business. It should go out of business. It should default because it means that it is stealing value from everyone. It is doing the equivalent of eating 10 sandwiches in order to make nine. It should stop we should shut down everything immediately because it is destroying stuff. That's all it's doing. And what the government does is say, oh my God, but look at all the jobs. Look at all the machines. We need to keep them running. And we need, you know, the volatility, or not the volatility, the velocity of money to be increased. We're going to encourage spending by lowering artificially lowering interest rate to 5% and giving this guy a loan. Does it fix his behavior? Does it make his business more profitable? Does it mean that his 10 sandwiches now produce 11? No, it just means that he can eat another 10 sandwiches and produce another nine. In fact, even worse is he hires on twice as many employees to make 18 sandwiches and he eats 20. The problem doesn't get fixed. It gets papered over. The books get cooked. And now we're in, now we're, we've doubled down on a losing bet. Now we have twice the machines destroying this value. Now we have twice the employees wrapped up in it. Now we have twice the retirement, re retirement and twice the pensions at risk. And now it's even more important to bail it out because we've, we've doubled down on a bet that was losing. And we didn't even change. Our hand didn't change. We're still, we're still with the same business practices. A recession is the most important part of the free market. It's profit and loss. If you do not have loss, you never clean out irresponsible behavior. You can't remove fraud. Fraud destroys itself. It does it all by itself. Irresponsible business practices destroy resources. If you just let the market work, all of it will die. And even better, all the people who weren't involved in it wouldn't have to pay for it. Ah, that was a rant. Um, I said none of this. I had like one little point in my notes and then I just like went off. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, so uh, there's, there's a quote here. Um, I'll actually just hit this point and then we'll close this one out. Uh, this is a really great, really great piece from Marty's Bent. Um, uh, by the way, if you're not um, subscribed to that, uh, I highly recommend it. It's always a great little read. Um, he's got tons of great little rants, uh, and they're constant. You know, it's a, a wonderful, constant stream. Uh, I will leave the link in the show notes so you can check it out. Uh, but this is, uh, oh, man, the, the risk is so bad. We are so, like, we have pulled the dominoes so, so, so close together. Um, like that, that is literally, it has been an orchestrated, like if there's, there's actually an episode that I did on this of if I wanted to destroy the economy, how I would do it specifically, if it was the largest, most robust economy in the world, like you'd have to move slowly. You'd have to create an imbalance over a very, very long span of time. But genuinely everything we've done over the last 50 years is a great way to do that. Um, lowering the interest rate so that more and more people go into debt um, and you basically destroy savings culture completely. Um, you, you end up in an economy of basically frivolous crap and short-term planning. Uh, nobody plans for the long term. And the further and further you can go into debt and every time you start to have that de-risking, you, you start to have a deleveraging event you essentially artificially inflate it with more leverage at a lower rate um, in an effort to pump the bubble up further uh, because the 
the more leverage you put into the system, the better the collapse is going to be, the more vicious the fallout is all going to be. But there's a ton of other little economic policies and stuff that we have done that actually add to this, that worsen um, everybody's dependence on it, like attaching, uh, you know, putting a dependence and reliability on our employers for uh, life insurance and health insurance and any sort of benefits and retirement. The fact that these things have been slowly politically tethered to our jobs so that losing a job, like we're just trapped. Everybody's trapped in their job because everything is connected to it. Your whole livelihood, not just your next week's income, but everything about your family security, your long-term security, your retirement is now connected to your job. So losing your job is a disaster. And then when you remove savings, you trap people further into those jobs. You make the fallout, the damage of losing your job uh, that much greater because literally savings is your runway to say no to a bad job, to leave a job that isn't worth your while. You're stuck in your job because you have no savings. And so one of the key things would be to devalue savings, to, to basically disencourage, make sure savings gets little to no interest rates, um, make sure that it loses 10% in value every year. You inflate it away because you don't want anybody to have savings. That means they're absolutely 100% stuck. But I'm, I'm not going to, I shouldn't go into this whole thing. I did a whole episode on this. I think it was like, I don't even remember what I called it. It's like, it's a guy's take on like how I would destroy an economy or something like that. I don't remember. But um, uh, if you want to think about this from the opposite scenario is, is not, is the government response good or bad, but just what would you need to do to, to take the most robust, most productive economy into, in the world how could you subtly undermine the entire thing? Even if you're just, if you were doing it on purpose. Um, and I think I have a pretty good plan and I think it's pretty great because we're seeing it play out. And I'm not saying it's like a conspiracy, it could be, but it's actually, I think it's just natural incentives. Um, when you have a central bank, that's, this is what you do. You have a money printer, you, uh, this is how you benefit yourself at everybody else's expense. This is how the government gets all the funding and all the political uh, incentives in, in aligned so that they can gain more power and more influence and more control, uh, and they can actually hide the cost of it. So it doesn't have to be explicit. All the incentives are in place for it to happen naturally, even if everybody is completely dumb to it. Like, nobody has the slightest clue what's going on. It's still exactly what would happen. The political apparatus and a central bank together literally just make it naturally occur the destruction of society how wonderful huh but this is all i'd lead into a quote from marty spent here um quote that problem is being exacerbated by adjustable rate mortgages which are simultaneously increasing monthly payments as the underlying collateral is evaporating that scenario is being exacerbated by the fact that others who don't find themselves in that situation are finding themselves in a forced selling position because they need to afford to put gas in their cars and food on their tables. What is really scary to think about is that this could be further exacerbated by the baby boomers who previously thought they were comfortable in retirement, adding to the cascading effect by selling their financial and real estate assets in an attempt to lock in a somewhat material nest egg in cash so that they can live lives of sufficient comfort. This is where things get nasty, is all of our retirements, pensions, the entire baby boomer generation is tied to these liabilities. And we've known for a long time, like since 2010, like people have been talking about real economists with half a brain in their head have been talking about like the risk of baby boomers taking out their retirement, of leaving the workforce and thinking that they have these liabilities that are going to pay for their retirement. They're going to fund their retirement. If we aren't exporting paper anymore, if we've threatened the dollar, if we don't get that dollar privilege, man, that shit is gone. That we don't, none of that is there. Literally the next generations out, we have $150 trillion of unfunded liabilities. And I say that as a vague number because 
I've, I've heard a couple of different numbers, but think about the idea that a 10 to 20 trillion dollar, the entire GDP of the United States worth of margin of error is kind of unimportant. That I could say 170, I could say 130, I could say 100 doesn't really matter. It's still an impossible problem. This is what political promises without the balancing act of the market, without the balancing force of the market and real money, being able to keep them in check does. You know, Lenin said, Lenin actually said, and I saved this quote recently because I'd forgotten about it, but that essentially the implementation of a central bank gets you 90% of the way to communism. You get all the facade of a free market, the appearance of people having free choice, yet in a totally insidious way, you've destroyed every important incentive that makes the market work. And so you get generations that think that this is capitalism. This is what markets produce. No, this is what central banking and fiat money produce. And the only solution is real money. There is no other solution. So the question is, what has the best likelihood of maintaining monetary policy integrity and taking it out of the hands of the government, removing it from the hands of the central banks and the political apparatus? What do you think that is? I'll let you guess at my answer. Um, all right. Thank you, guys. Uh, that'll, that'll, that'll do it for our uh, Monday episode. Um, I am, we are one day past the due date. Uh, we got little boy Swan on the way. I, any minute now. So I'm excited. I'm just here reading about Bitcoin and learning how to not be in the way, uh, while my, uh, wife is giving birth. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it's going to be an exciting week. Hopefully and I've got some, uh, uh, episodes, lined up so hopefully I don't miss it but there's like there's no telling we will see uh but with that uh thank you guys um and hopefully I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode thank you to Swan Bitcoin to Bitbox and to Fold for making my Bitcoin life uh pretty amazing I have stacked like crazy uh, in the last couple of weeks and it's been wonderful it's kind of amazing to watch all of my stacks double in sats amounts with these uh with this price correction. Hope you guys are taking advantage of it. And with that, thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you on the next Bitcoin Audible. Until then, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.